I mean, this is a very serious situation. All of these people are worried out of their minds for their families. Some of them haven't been sleeping in more than a week. Some of them aren't eating. Um, that's how worried they are. Preemptive Love is on the ground in northeastern Syria. And today, we're breaking in to share what is happening. You'll hear from our colleagues in the Middle East, sharing what they're seeing unfold. This is the biggest humanitarian crisis we've seen at one time, and it's getting worse. Some of our team delivering emergency aid has been shot at. Up to 300,000 people are running for their lives, fleeing Turkish bombs. The situation is desperate. I'm Kayla Craig, and this is Love Anyway, a podcast by Preemptive Love. So a lot has happened. Um, after several days of some pretty intense conflict uh, on the border between Syria and Turkey, uh, the U.S. and Turkey negotiated what the U.S. called a ceasefire. Turkey disputed that characterization, but essentially it was a five-day uh, halt in military operations in the region, reportedly to give the Kurdish forces time to get out of this 20-mile deep, almost 300-mile-long "Quote unquote safe zone" that Turkey says it wants to establish between uh, its border and Kurdish territory. That's Ben Irwin, who leads our communications team here at Preemptive Love. That ceasefire just expired, and in place of it, Turkey has now turned around and negotiated a deal with Russia that essentially lets Turkey keep all of the land that they have seized from the Kurds inside northern Syria. It lets them. Uh, establish much of the so-called safe zone that they wanted, and they will be jointly patrolling this area with the Russians. Um, as for the Kurds, they were not included in the negotiations between the U.S. and Turkey. They weren't included in the negotiations between Russia and Turkey. So they have, in effect, been left out in the cold yet again as other powers decide their fate. So the U.S. troops are gone. Uh, most of the U.S. troops are gone. According to uh, the president, uh, a statement that he made earlier today, there are a small number of troops remaining in Syria to guard the oil. But most of the troops, most of the 1,000 or so troops that were left in Syria have since moved out of the country, most of them going into neighboring Iraq. I gave Ben a call moments after President Trump gave a statement addressing his decision to withdraw from Syria, a choice that has received bipartisan criticism. Turkey, Syria, and all forms of the Kurds have been fighting for centuries. And now we're getting out. Let someone else fight over this long, bloodstained sand. This idea that they have been fighting for centuries and it has nothing to do with us and there's nothing we can do about it is deeply dishonest. The situation that they are in now, they're fighting because after World War I, the Kurds were promised their own country by the West and we didn't deliver on our promise. So... What is happening with the Kurdish people that are kind of stuck in this space? The Kurdish people who are stuck in this space, they're facing one of the biggest humanitarian emergencies that we have seen, one of the biggest displacements that we have seen in our 
12 some odd years of working in the Middle East. Anywhere from two to 300,000 people have fled their homes since the Turkish offensive began. It's a massive wave of displacement. And to complicate things, there aren't like refugee camps that they can just go to and and be safe. Like Mm. the families that we're serving right now, they're hiding out in schools, they're hiding in abandoned buildings, just anywhere that they can take shelter from Turkish bombs and Turkish shelling and, and the violence that has been erupting all around them. They don't magically get to go home, especially if Turkey follows through with its plans to kind of lock down this area as a so-called safe zone. And then if they follow through with their other plans, they want to deposit these two to three million Syrian refugees that are currently in Turkey, who were welcomed by Turkey once when they fled war in their own hometowns. But they're not welcome anymore. Public opinion in Turkey has turned against refugees as it has in many other countries. And so Turkey is trying to figure out what to do with these two to three million Syrian refugees. And they have not made any secret about the fact that they would like to forcibly relocate these two to three million refugees to this so-called safe zone that they're trying to establish. But that safe zone wasn't unoccupied. They're having to displace the people who already live there in order to forcibly relocate these people who didn't live here beforehand. They came from other parts of Syria. So they're actually going to create multiple waves of displacement on top of each other. Even if all of the fighting, all of the violence stops today, you still have a massive displacement crisis on your hands. In the midst of these ancient sectarian and tribal conflicts, today's announcement validates our course of action with Turkey that only a couple of weeks ago was scorned. And now people are saying, wow, what a great outcome. These are families that are just kind of, they have nowhere to go. They've lost their homes like multiple times. This area is home to a lot of the major Kurdish towns, villages, and cities in this part of Syria. So it's, yeah, it's families, it's whole communities, it's it's Kurds, it's ethnic and religious minorities as well. Yazidis have been displaced. Christian communities have been displaced. Everybody is being impacted by Turkey's military offensive and now their occupation of Kurdish land. We can't wash our hands of the situation that the Kurds are in right now. There may be no easy solution at this point, but we can't wash our hands. We can't pretend like we had nothing to do with this. And I think that's the biggest concern with the narrative that is coming out of Washington right now. We're not the only ones who have contributed to brokenness and dysfunction and conflict in the Middle East, but we've certainly contributed our our share to it. And that's not something you can just walk away from. That's not fair to the people who have been directly impacted by our actions and our policies for decades. We're achieving a much more peaceful and stable area between Turkey and Syria, including a 20-mile-wide safe zone. An interesting term, safe zone. That's the term we're using. Hopefully, that zone will become safe. We're not just in the middle of a war over territory and land and borders. We're in the middle of a battle over facts and narratives and whose narrative of what's happening is going to prevail. Moments before we got on to record this, the president made a statement in which he claimed that thousands of Kurdish lives were saved by 
our actions over the last couple of weeks. We know a lot of people who have lost their lives in, in the fighting, and we know of many, many more who have had to flee their homes, some of whom may never, ever be able to go back home. The American delegation negotiated the original five-day ceasefire that ended Kurdish fighters to safely leave. It just got them to a point where, frankly, they were able it enabled them to get out, to go, and move really just a few miles in a slightly different direction. There's a narrative coming out of Washington. And then there is what we are seeing on the ground, what our friends who are caught up in this conflict, people that we're in conversation with day after day, friends in bombarded cities in northern Syria who we spoke with one individual, like he had to pause his conversation with us because he had to go out and pull bodies from the streets. They are telling a very different story of what's happening right now than the one that's coming out of Washington. We have done them a great service and we've done a great job for all of them. Aaron Wilson is our senior field editor in the Middle East. But more than simply meeting with people to document a story, she genuinely cares for her friends in Iraq whose loved ones are facing bombs, displacement, and sickness in northeastern Syria. As soon as the news came out that the U.S. was withdrawing its presence and Turkish forces were moving in, Erin immediately visited her Kurdish friends who are intimately connected to the region. I mean, this is a very serious situation. All of these people are worried out of their minds for their families. Some of them haven't been sleeping in more than a week. Some of them aren't eating. Um, That's how worried they are. Erin started hearing news that Iraq would be opening its borders to Kurds who have been displaced in northern Syria. But not everyone had access to that news. Over the weekend, I saw reports that up to a thousand Syrians had been allowed into Iraq as refugees. Now, previous to that, Iraq had their border closed, so Syrian Kurds were not allowed to come into Kurdistan, but they recently opened their borders. And so when I was talking to the ladies this morning, I mentioned that, and they said, oh, no, no, the border is closed. There's nowhere for them to go. A little while later, we went to another house, and the husband was watching the news, and he saw it on the news that, as of today, I guess 4,000 Syrian Kurds had been allowed into Iraq, and he shouted it from the living room where he was watching the news on TV. And immediately, Rana and her friend, whose house we were at, got on their phones to message their families and say, get here, you have to get here now. And first, her sister said, I can't even get across town right now. There's been bombings in in that area, and there's fires from the bombs, and she just couldn't couldn't even fathom how she could get out of town. These friends are desperately trying to stay in contact with their loved ones in northeastern Syria, doing all they can to help. Because compared to what is happening now in Syria, refugee camps in Iraq are a safe haven. This is a more personal story about one of our friends who is at a refugee camp here in Iraq and her sister still in Syria. When we first met with Ehan last week, she was looking pretty rough, to be honest. She hadn't been sleeping or, or eating for many days. She is extremely worried about her sister and her family in, in Syria. Ahan also has three brothers there, but it's her sister that she's the most worried about because of where she lives. Her sister's name is Shireen. She's a wife, a daughter, a mother of two young children. 
and like so many Kurdish people who live in northern Syria, due to no fault of her own, she and her family are stuck in the dangerous crosshairs of violence. She said that now it's nearly impossible to leave her house because it's surrounded by fires made by bombs and there's still a lot of shooting there. What she said was the situation is really not good. We're afraid in our houses and we don't know what to do. Shireen and her children fled to take shelter in an abandoned school like so many other Kurds. Home is not an option. The only hope is to make it to tomorrow. Um, She has a son who's seven and a daughter who's three that she's traveling with. And they're both really sick now from the stress. Everyone here, there, is uh, terrified because the news that they heard from Erdogan said Turkish-backed forces would bomb and or shoot every place where there are still people living. And so she said, you know, where, where could they go? The last we talked to her sister Ehan, when we left there, they didn't yet know about uh, the possibility of getting into Iraq. And I have not heard an update today if they had been able to escape or if they're still there. We are serving on average 200 displaced people per day at our two mobile units. Jen Meyerson is our programs manager at Preemptive Love. She sent this update to the team. As more and more move out of the city and start to move south, they're they're thinking that they might see more gatherings in these abandoned schools on these roads. So our doctors are seeing on average 100 patients a day in the ambulances um, each, that's 200. They're seeing a lot of basic sicknesses and concerns, but they're also treating a large amount of shrapnel wounds, burn victims, and then malnutrition. People are showing up in need of emergency food faster than we can provide it. Starvation is going to be a really real thing soon. Uh, At the same time, our food distribution team was under direct attack at multiple locations. They were communicating with other people on the ground for sniper locations, and this allowed everyone to remain safe. But distributing food has been extremely dangerous for our team. And getting information to and from northeastern Syria, it's complicated. Jen sent a message explaining a conversation with a team member who is on the ground. And she explained how the military has pressed down on a zero phone service and zero internet. So information is like delivered from a USB from one person to another to another and then gets to her. They feel pressed down. She said that she's struggling, which I've never heard her say before, of just feeling very, very crushed on multiple sides. No matter how difficult it gets in northern Syria, and from what we hear from our team, things aren't looking up yet. One thing is for sure, choosing to love anyway is worth the risk. We aren't going anywhere, but we do need your help. In a lot of the places our team was showing up, what they were hearing from the people that they were serving is, You are the only ones who have reached us. You are the only ones who've provided any aid, who've been here. You're the only ones we've seen. They are having to find families who are hiding, who are taking shelter in abandoned buildings and schools. They're handing out uh, ready-to-eat food packs. When you're on the run, it's not like you can bring the stove with you. So we're having to distribute food that people can eat right then and there. The other day, we got a call from our team, kind of an urgent call saying, the food is gone. Like we have 
we have handed out everything we had and there are more people coming. Every last food pack has been given out to families on the run and more families are coming. The best thing is to donate. And if you can donate monthly, that is even better because we don't just have our eye on the immediate crisis, on the immediate needs of families. Yes, we are providing food. We're providing medical care. We're coming into winter and winter is cold in Syria. It can drop below freezing there. So we have to think about what a shelter going to look like for these families. We have to think about what kind of livelihood, what kind of jobs, what kind of work um, will they have available to them so that they can provide for themselves so they can get back on their feet and rebuild their lives. Like These are the conversations we need to be having now. We have to show up. We have to meet them where they are. I mean, the cameras are going to move on. The news cycle at some point is going to move on from, from Syria. The question is, are we going to move on with them or are we going to stay and stand by our friends who have been abandoned by uh, some of their most crucial allies in the last couple of weeks and feel like the whole world has in effect turned its back on them. Are we gonna be the ones who stand with them for the long haul, not just for the initial wave, but for the years of rebuilding and reclaiming their lives that are ahead of them? Please give now to help save lives. $40 feeds a family of six for an entire week. Visit preemptivelove dot org slash podcast where you can give knowing your money is going to families who need it most in Syria. Thanks for listening to this breaking news episode. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss an update. Until next time, I'm Kayla Craig and this is Love Anyway, a podcast from Preemptive Love. Preemptive Love.